I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to Money Talks on Economist Radio. I'm Simon Long, an editor at The Economist. Today, we're talking about climate change and the risks and opportunities businesses face. The global economy has benefited immensely from burning billions of tonnes of fossil fuels. Electricity, cars, central heating, air conditioning, computers and the internet have improved the lives of billions and helped young economies grow. But the risks are clear. Climate change will displace tens of millions of people and will shake the foundations of the global economy. Clearly, change is needed to decarbonise the planet. The world economy requires a near-complete overhaul. But how will businesses adapt to this radical change? And how does capitalism need to up its game? We ask an economist, Kate Wayworth, if economic growth in the rich world is compatible with environmentalism. We are living way beyond the means of the planet. We have economies that are massively exceeding our fair share of the global carbon budget. We're using far too much fertiliser and nutrients. We are consuming goods and resources in ways that are destroying biodiversity. Who are the climate tycoons hoping to tap into market forces to make the globe greener? Of course, the oldest adage is money comes to money. So billionaires know how to attract more money. Some of them are actually true believers who are betting on blue sky technologies, long range projects that may never come to fruition, but if they did, could really move the needle on climate change. Plus, we hear from the winner of The Economist's Open Future competition about how the legal system could play a vital role in protecting future generations. Business, like all human enterprise, is directly threatened by climate change. The risks may not become catastrophic for the corporate world for decades to come. But what should businesses be doing to prepare? There is a sort of almost a perverse disincentive to think about risks. Once you identify certain risks, it is your fiduciary duty to your shareholders to disclose it. So once you disclose a risk and you own up to it, in today's market, you will sort of probably face a first mover disadvantage and and the market will punish you rather than reward you for your honesty. Jan Piotrowski is The Economist's business editor. He's been looking into the different types of risks companies face from climate change. There are three main buckets when it comes to climate-related risks that corporations face. The first, possibly the most obvious, and that's just the risk to their physical infrastructure for climate-related extreme weather. So if you have a plant which is on the coast and sea levels are rising and the coasts are becoming more vulnerable to storm surges, or indeed your supply chains risk being compromised by the flooding of roads, railroads, any company that operates in the world, especially in parts of it which are more exposed to climate extremes, is going to face that risk. The second category of risk, they're called transition risks in the jargon, and that is 
basically risks from regulation or technological disruption, which is either wrought by regulation or comes out of sort of exogenously. So if you have a coal-fired power plant and suddenly you have to pay a very high price for, for carbon emissions, or if coal-fired power plants are banned, then your asset may be worthless. The transition risks basically pertain to the proportion of a company's assets and its future revenue streams which would be compromised if certain regulations came into force. When you calculate how much they could affect the valuations of companies, actually the transition risk could lop off much more of the value of listed firms than physical risk on average. The third one is legal risk. So there is an increasing number of lawsuits which are being filed against corporations. These lawsuits will primarily be aimed at historical emitters. They're basically based on the notion that extreme events are being exacerbated by the contribution to the global stock of atmospheric carbon, which has historically been perpetrated by certain companies. And most of these companies will be the high emitting companies. So oil producers, coal miners, and such like. And and these companies are indeed being taken to court. I suppose there's a sense out there at the moment, isn't there, with the UN summit in New York, with the economists having a climate issue, with Extinction Rebellion, protests around the world, with classroom strikes and so on, that in the West, at least, and among young people in particular, a sort of tipping point in popular opinion has been reached and that there is a widespread recognition that the world is in crisis. From what you're saying, it sounds as if business as a whole is not quite there yet. No, I don't think it is. And the reason I think that it isn't is that for all the extinction rebellions and school strikes, there is certainly an acknowledgement that this is a problem in the abstract. But there is a great reluctance on the part of consumers to actually do something about it. They will very readily drop plastic straws, which is very straightforward and doesn't really make them go out of their way. But many, many, many fewer people, especially once they've ditched their plastic straws and now feel that they've ticked their environmental box, will stop flying or stop eating beef or stop driving and doing all the other things that are polluting. I think there's a great disconnect between the recognition of the problem in the abstract and the willingness of those recognizers to actually do something about it in practice. And I think that businesses recognize that they still have consumers, that these consumers are still not quite ready to vote for climate with their wallets. And it would be wrong to look to business to take the lead as long as people want to eat beef Farmers will raise cattle as long as people want to fly. Airlines will fly airplanes. There's nothing wrong with businesses taking the lead. I mean, you you probably shouldn't expect them to. It's not their duty as businesses. They have duties to their, their shareholders, probably to their employees, to some extent to their suppliers. It's not their job to solve the climate problem. They can certainly contribute to it, especially if they're given the right incentives. And some bosses and some shareholders, importantly, are genuinely concerned and are genuinely urging for their companies to take the lead. On the whole, that's still a small minority, which is sadly responsible for a minute fraction of the emissions which need to be cut. And I suppose underlying all this is a a much more fundamental question, isn't it? Whether companies in these days can continue to have big growth ambitions and have ambitions for cutting their emissions for saving the planet. This is where regulations come in, right? This newspaper, The Economist, has long supported proper price on carbon, which is an externality that is not being priced in in the marketplace. If it were, 
then that would go a long way towards channeling resources to their best and cleanest use. And companies would have to adjust as they adjust to other incentives and disincentives that are placed upon them by regulations. There will be some companies which will do things of their own accord. Some of them will do it out of self-interest fearing a reputational backlash. So others will do it in their sort of longer-term self-interest, anticipating certain regulatory measures. So a lot of companies are instituting internal carbon prices as a dry run for the time when they ultimately are. There will be some companies which, which will be doing something, but the problem with climate change is that it's a cumulative global problem. So what matters is the cumulative stock of emissions in the atmosphere. And if you just have the leaders doing something, that's great. They should be applauded for it. But this doesn't solve the problem because to solve the problem, you need to get the laggards on board. And some of the laggards will be encouraged or maybe chivied along by the leaders just to try and keep up. But many of them will need a stick, right? And, And that stick will ultimately have to come in the form of some type of regulation which will force them into concerted climate action. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. You can read Jan's piece and a full issue of The Economist devoted to climate change if you take out a subscription. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Next, how should economists adapt to the fact that economic growth contributes towards climate change? After all, the idea of growth is at the heart of the discipline of economics. Growth measures an increase in an economy's production of goods and services and is a central goal of many countries. But some economists argue that endless growth is environmentally unsustainable. My name's Kate Rayworth, and I'm the author of Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. The donut economics idea is based on a diagram. It looks like a donut, the kind with a hole in the middle. And the hole in the middle is a place where people are falling short on the essentials of life, where people don't have the resources they need to have food, water, housing, healthcare, education, the essentials of life, get everybody out of the hole. You could say that was a 20th century economic agenda. Let's grow our economy so we have the resources to buy the things we need. But there's also an outer edge to this donut, an outer limit, which is the amount of pressure that we can put on our planet without pushing our planet out of balance. So this is ensuring that we don't cause climate breakdown that we don't acidify the oceans, create a hole in the ozone layer, create catastrophic levels of biodiversity loss. And these are the nine planetary boundaries drawn up by Earth system scientists a decade ago. So when you look at the donut as a whole, we want to leave nobody in the donut's hole, falling short on the essentials of life. And yet collectively, humanity cannot overshoot our pressure on the planet and putting too much pressure on these planetary boundaries. We need to meet the needs of all people within the means of the living planet. And that's really the essence of what the donut aims for. So as I understand it, your essential criticism of existing economic theory is that it relies on growth and your donut is fixed in size. 
Well, my essential criticism of existing economics is that it starts with the market, supply and demand. I ask students the world over, what's the first diagram you remember learning? Supply and demand, the market. We dive straight in. And so we immediately put price as the central mechanism, the market as the major dominant form of interaction in the economy. And anything that falls outside markets and prices, of course, gets called an externality, which I think is a a tragic, out-of-date term for the life-supporting systems of our planet. So we start with the market, but then we ask, well, what's an economy? to do. And because economics doesn't actually name explicit goals for the economy, growth creeps in, a proxy goal like a cuckoo creeps into the empty nest where moral values have been vacated. And so we find that our economies become focused on pursuing GDP growth. There are many good reasons for pursuing GDP growth, but it becomes a self-perpetuating goal too often in the hands of policymakers. And I would say also often in economics teaching. Many students who I raise this issue with, their jaw literally drops when they realise that they had just accepted GDP growth as the implicit goal of economics. And they'd never even been invited to question if GDP growth was always desirable, if it was always possible, and if it wasn't, what on earth would we pursue instead? So yes, I absolutely criticise the implicit, tacit presumption that pursuing GDP growth is a good thing. I'm sure you're right that many economist readers are facing the same sort of agonizing thinking about these issues that that you are. But I think many, particularly in poorer countries, and I know you've spent a lot of your career with the UN and, and Oxfam, cannot see an alternative to growth. They cannot see a way of getting that higher proportion of people who, in your terms, are in the hole in the donut, out of their poverty, without economic growth. How has the reaction been to your book in poor countries? So I never in my book say, oh, we should give up on growth. The first thing we need to do is differentiate between countries. And there are many countries, as you just suggested, in the world that desperately need economic growth if it's the kind of growth that actually enables them to get all children in school, to get decent primary health care for everybody, to provide mobility and decent housing and clean energy to their citizens. I'm all for that growth because that's exactly where the global economy needs to be expanding to get those people out of the hole in the donut, as you say. The place where we need to tackle growth is in our home countries, in the UK, in the US, Japan, Canada, across Europe, across North America, because these high income countries are looking to growth. And yet we are living way beyond the means of the planet. We have economies that are massively exceeding our fair share of the global carbon budget. We're using far too much fertilizer and nutrients. We are consuming goods and resources in ways that are destroying biodiversity. It's our high-income countries that need to look very hard at the deep structural dependence that we have built into our economies on unending GDP growth. So it is a weird conundrum that in the first quarter of the 21st century, that the richest countries in the world still believe that the solution to their economic problems lies in yet more GDP growth, no matter how rich they already are. We have to recognise there's something of an addiction there, that every country thinks its solution lies in more growth, and there's no thought that there's an end to this ever. It's unending growth. On a delicately balanced, finite planet, you're going to run into trouble. The problems you're seeking to tackle are, of course global. Is it possible for individual cities that you're working with or even for individual countries to do anything on their own? And if not, how can one incentivize the really big carbon emitters, which have done so well out of the current system, to change their ways? You're hitting on the obvious conundrum of collective action. Why should I act when I can see others not acting? I should act because, thank goodness, 
there are people who stand up and say, actually, it's just time to provide leadership. I'm not going to look for an economic rationale. I'm not going to look for a case of I'll only act if you act. I'm going to do it because I know it's the right thing to do. And I know that once I provide leadership, others will be inspired to act. And that's why I'm so delighted to be working with the C40 network of cities, because I'm seeing, and I think many people see, so much leadership is failing at the national level in countries, and yet mayors and regional governments are stepping up where national leadership is failing in places around the country and saying, we will act. And actually... By looking at this, first of all, there's opportunity because we know that the fossil fuel industry is dying and dead and going to be gone and it needs to be gone. And so the future of energy is in renewable energy and those who move fast will do well. So let's get in there and actually see this transformation as a real opportunity. Don't be an optimist, especially if that makes you relax and say, oh, you know, humans, we're ingenious, we'll sort it out. We've got technological innovation. We've sorted out before. If optimism makes you sit back and relax, do not go there because we have no time to sit back and relax and things will not sort themselves out. But on the other hand, don't be a pessimist if it makes you give up, if it makes you say it's too late, it's too hard, we can't do this because the science does not show that. And who on earth is going to turn around to the next generation and say, oh, sorry, we gave up. There was actually time, but we thought there wasn't. So we gave up. It's a self-fulfilling crisis and decline if you sit back and give up. People know this is actually a time where things are up for grabs and we've got to be part of making that change. Kate Rayworth, thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. So, in light of the existential threat posed by climate change, should rich countries be turning away from growth? Throughout human history, there's been a race between development and degradation. Call it the great race between growth and greenery. Vijay Vaitiswaran is The Economist's US business editor. He's been looking into the billionaires betting lots of greenbacks on green growth. At the moment, there is a prevailing pessimism whether we can continue to grow. The case is being made by green tycoons is that, in fact, a different kind of growth, which is compatible with climate, involves investments in new kinds of technologies, novel business models. In other words, you can have the growth, but also perhaps have green jobs and green technologies. And so that is what's so interesting about this experiment with the climate tycoons, is they're trying to show that we can indeed have a future with growth and greenery. You've come up with this list of a not-so-dirty-dozen business tycoons. How did you come to select them, and what sort of categories do they fit into? I tried to look for archetypes, and what I found was several different types of tycoon, let's say, that is using the power of markets and business models to do something that we would be generally happy to see tackle climate change in some form. It might be clean energy, it might be efficiency, it might be some form of uh, carbon mitigation, but something in that realm. One is the inventor uh, in the mold of Thomas Edison. The most popular and well-known figure in this mold is Elon Musk, who is uh, the founder of Tesla and has done more than most, I would say, tycoons to popularize and commercialize both batteries, bringing them from irrelevance to commercial scale in cars, but also electric vehicles themselves. And he and his engineering team have actually done a lot of the hard work of inventing and coming up with the packaging of those technologies. And beyond inventors, what about pure investors, people just investing in clean energy because they think they can make money out of it? Of course, the oldest adage is money comes to money. So billionaires know how to attract more money. Some of them are actually true believers who are betting on blue sky technologies, long range projects that may never come to fruition. But if they did, could really move the needle on climate change. The best example of this sort is Bill Gates 
the former software billionaire, he created something called Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is a new kind of venture capital fund. They'll bet only on technologies and business models that can reduce roughly 1% of the world's carbon emissions. In other words, a huge amount. And so they're betting on very risky things like fusion power, for example. They have a series of long shot bets that normal venture capitalists wouldn't touch. And then you have what I call the interlopers. And these are often people who made their money in traditional industries, often dirty industries, to be honest. A good example of this, for example, is an American tycoon, Philip Anschutz, who's been dubbed the man who owns LA. He is a, a conglomerate with dozens of companies from entertainment to telecoms, but he made a lot of money in oil, it must be said. He has now turned himself into a wind tycoon. He's just won final approval for a $3 billion transmission pipe to send wind power from Wyoming, where it's quite blustery, to California, which is very power hungry. And he's also supporting a $5 billion project to develop those wind projects in, in Wyoming and nearby areas. So a massive bet on clean energy by someone whose background is not necessarily green. How much of all this is about establishing green credentials and how much of it is about really making a difference? Are, are they changing the world as we know it? It's very hard to move the needle on a problem like climate change. So you need to have multiple levers. So I would say, you know, will uh, the efforts of green capitalists alone solve this problem? The answer is no. I don't think that's enough. You must have, for a global problem like this, a global response. And as we've argued on our pages, you must have meaningful policies, among other things, a carbon price that's meaningful and global. Without that, I think you wouldn't get the incentives in place for a lot of these entrepreneurs to put these kinds of resources into this problem. But we are beginning to see that in various parts of the world. So as we see governments act, as we see momentum from society, from consumers demanding action as well, what we're seeing is that the, the cleverest of these business people are seeing opportunity. And to me, that represents the potential turning point. When this stops being something that business is scolded for and told you mustn't do the wrong thing, and we have enough business people with the resources, the ingenuity, the dynamism that business uh, always has, applying themselves to making money, solving the problem. As we get towards that world, I have a lot more hope that we can tackle climate change properly. And how about in terms of setting a personal example? How are these tycoons doing? I suppose the, the popular image is that they may see a profit motive in pursuing environmentally helpful projects, but that in their personal lives, they still want to hop on their private executive jets and shoot off to Davos once a year and so on. I think there's no denying that. I think almost all of these billionaires are, are jet setters in air travel. So I think they stand guilty as charged on that account. However, I think we can look beyond that to say, what's a life cycle analysis of a billionaire or tycoon's impact on the world? And there you might find that to take Elon Musk as an example, though he does have a penchant for race cars and he races rockets into space, both of which are using a lot of fossil fuels, by transforming the auto industry, an enormous guzzler of fossil fuels, and having followed that topic for many years, I'm confident that the world auto industry, the old boys in Detroit and in Germany, would not have moved on electric vehicles without the disruptive innovation created by Tesla. And finally, Vijay, one name on your list, I suppose, is at the complete opposite end of the spectrum to Elon Musk and would surprise many listeners, and that's the Pope. Why is he there? Arguably, Pope Francis is the greenest pontiff to date. Now, I will immediately say that living alone in an enormous house by yourself is not the greenest thing to do. And if you forgive that small sin, 
I think it's a very virtuously green pontiff. He has made climate change one of the cornerstone themes of his time as pope. Among other things, he's, he's used the bully pulpit uh, to bring together oil companies. He recently gathered some of the world's top oil companies, including ExxonMobil and, and Shell, first of all, to scold them for their behavior on, on climate change, but also to get them to agree to uh, support meaningful carbon pricing in legislation around the world and to agree to disclosure of the impact of climate on their businesses, which is a really big deal for these companies, which they've often tried to hem and haw and get out of shareholder lawsuits, trying to get them to do that and so on. The power of moral suasion, which the Pope does have amongst many people in the world, I think that's quite important. And I think it has an impact on people as well, on voters who may push their governments to act faster. So I think we do have a case of a, a certain kind of climate tycoon who's using the biggest bully pulpit of all to try to nudge the world into a greener direction. Vijay, thank you very much. Oh, it's great to be with you. Finally, as part of our Open Future programme, The Economist's initiative to start a global conversation on the role of markets, technology and freedom in the 21st century, The Economist held an essay contest for people aged between 16 and 25 on the question, What fundamental economic and political change, if any, is needed for an effective response to climate change? We were overwhelmed with the scope and quality of the response and received nearly 2,500 essays from more than 110 countries. Almost half the entrants were teenagers. We asked some of the finalists to share their ideas with us. In the United States, over 20 young people are suing the federal government to stop allowing oil companies to drill on public land, accusing the government of violating their constitutional rights to life, liberty, and property. As an American, I am ashamed of my country's inability to act on climate change. Where we should be contributing to, or even leading, a global energy revolution, we do nothing. The engines of American excitement are quiet. Every human would have the same right to pollute. This in turn would have strong anti-poverty effects in addition to its effect on stopping climate change. An issue like climate change, one that respects no political or national boundary that puts us all at risk, cannot be solved without fundamental change. The old generation of developing nations could plead that it did not know any better method of industrializing. Today, the data is clear. Climate-friendly policy is essential. I'm Larissa Parker from Toronto, Ontario, and I currently live in Montreal studying law. I'm really excited to have won the competition, incredibly surprised. I chose to write the essay because I've been learning about the effects of climate change and the human rights effects of climate change for my whole academic life. Uh, and I'm, I mean, it obviously really saddens me. And I think the question that comes up constantly is, is, is what can we do about it? So I went to law school to try and do something about it with the law. And writing this essay was kind of a way to talk about that and, and talk about what I'm learning in law school and, and, and how to tackle climate change with it. Make a healthy climate a legal right that extends to future generations. In March 2019, I joined over 100,000 young people to strike in the streets of Montreal. We claimed the downtown area for hours, demanding increased climate action from our decision makers. Children of all ages attended, marching for their right to grow up in a healthy world. In my essay, I introduced an accountability problem, uh, which I think many are familiar with, and it's the fact that because it takes so long for the effects of climate change to manifest, very few people or government actors or industries feel the need to act on climate change now. In the last decade, the not-in-my-backyard phenomenon has turned into a not-in-my-lifetime one. 
After attending the United Nations climate conferences as a youth delegate for years, I have watched governments around the world put short-term economic gain before the long-term well-being of the planet and my generation. I think a lot of people in my parents' generation, for example, are skeptical about climate change still or, or skeptical about the urgency of it. My main response to them would be, if this is all a hoax, which I 100% don't think it is, but if it is, the worst thing that we've done is made a cleaner world. Congratulations to the competition's winner, Larissa Parker, and thanks to everyone who entered. Come and join The Economist's Open Future Festival on the 5th of October in Chicago, Manchester and Hong Kong for lively debates on climate change and the other critical questions of our day. There are limited tickets available for the Chicago and Manchester events. To register, go to economist.com slash festival. That's economist.com forward slash festival and enter the discount code econradio. Well, that's all for this edition of Money Talks. And if you like the show, please don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Simon Long in London. This is The Economist. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.